Chapters twenty three and twenty four of the Avenger by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter twenty three. A passionate pilgrim. It seemed to Rayson, as by and by he began to make bolder and more rapid progress, that it was an actual fairy world into which he was passing with beating heart and this strange new sense of delicious excitement. As he drew nearer, the round Norman towers and immense grey front of the chateau began to take to themselves more definite shape. The gardens began to spread themselves out. Terraced lawns, from whose flower-beds now a blurred chaos so far as colour was concerned, waves of perfume came stealing down to him. Statuary appeared white and ghostly in the half-light, and here and there startlingly lifelike. There were trim shrubs, and a long wall of roses trailed down from the high stone balcony. But as yet there was no sound or sign of human life. That was to come. Rayson came to a pause at last. He had passed from the shelter of the woods into a laurel walk, but further than this he could not go without being plainly visible to anyone in the chateau. So he waited and watched. There were lights, he could see now, behind many of the ground-floor windows of the chateau, and more than once he fancied that he could catch the sound of music. He tried to fancy in which room she was, to project his passionate will through the twilight, so that she should come to him. But the curtains remained undrawn, and the windows closed. Still Rayson waited. Then at last Providence intervened. Above the top of the woods, over on the other side of the chateau, came first a faint lightning in the sky, which gradually deepened into a glow. Slowly the rim of the moon crept up, and very soon the spectral twilight was at an end. The shadowy landscape became real and vivid. It was a new splendor creeping softly into the night. Rayson moved a little further back into his shelter, and even as he did so, one of the lower windows of the chateau was thrown open, and two women followed by a man stepped out. Their appearance was so sudden that Rayson felt his breath almost taken away. He leaned a little forward and watched them eagerly. The woman who was foremost of the little group was a stranger to him, although her features and a somewhat peculiar headdress which she wore seemed in a sense familiar. She was tall and dark, and she carried herself with the easy dignity of a woman of rank. Her face was thoughtful and her expression sweet. If she was not actually beautiful she was at least a woman whom it was impossible to ignore. But Rayson glanced at her only for a minute. It was Louise who stood by her side. The music of her voice came floating down to him. Heavens had he ever realized how beautiful she was! He devoured her with his eyes, he strained his nerves to hear what they were saying. He was ridiculously relieved to see that the man who stood by her side was grey-headed. He was beginning to realize what love was. Jealousy would be intolerable. They moved about the terrace. He scarcely knew whether he hoped or feared the more that they would descend and come nearer to him. After all it was cruelly tantalizing. He dared not disobey the baroness, or he would have stepped boldly from his hiding-place and gone up to them. But that, by the terms of his promise, was impossible. 
he was to make his presence known to Louise only if he could do so secretly. He was not to accost her in the presence of any other person. It might be days or weeks before the opportunity came, or it might, it might be minutes. For almost without warning she was alone. The others had left her with farewells, if any, of the briefest. She came forward to the grey stone parapet, and, with her head resting upon her hand, looked out towards the woods. His heart began to beat faster, his brain was confused. Was there any chance that she would descend into the gardens? Dare he make a signal to her? Her head and shoulders were bare, and a slight breeze had sprung up during the last few minutes. Perhaps she would feel the cold and go in. Perhaps. He watched her breathlessly. She had abandoned her thoughtful attitude and was standing upright, looking around her. She looked once at the window. She was apparently undecided whether to go in or not. Wrayson prayed then, if he had never prayed before. He didn't know to whom. He was simply conscious of an intense desire which seemed somehow formulated into an appeal. Before he was fully conscious of it she was coming down the steps. She stood on the edge of the lawn for a moment as though considering. Then, carefully raising her skirts in both hands, she picked her way amongst the flower-beds, coming almost directly towards him. Glancing round he saw her objective, a rustic seat under a dark cedar-tree, and he saw, too, that she must pass within a few feet of where he stood. She walked as one dreaming, or whose thoughts are far distant, her head thrown back, her eyes half-closed. The awakening, when it came, was sudden enough. "'Louise!' he called to her softly. "'Louise!' She dropped her skirts. For a moment he feared that she was going to cry out. "'Who is that?' she asked sharply. "'It is I, Herbert Wrayson,' he answered. "'Don't be afraid. Shall I come out to you, or will you come down the laurel path?' "'You,' she murmured. "'You!' He saw the light in her face, and his voice was hoarse with passion. "'Come,' he cried, "'or I must fetch you. Louise, sweetheart!' She came towards him a little timidly, her eyebrows arched, a divine smile playing about her lips. She stood at the entrance to the laurel grove and peered a little forward. "'Where are you?' she asked. "'Is it really you? I think that I am a little afraid. Oh!' He took her into his arms with a little laugh of happiness. Time and life itself stood still. Her feeble remonstrances were swept away in the tide of his passion. His lips hung burning against hers. "'My sweetheart,' he murmured, "'thank God you came.' She disengaged herself presently. A clock from the stables was striking. She counted the hours. Eleven o'clock!' she exclaimed. "'Herbert, how long have I been here?' "'Don't ask me that,' he answered. "'Only tell me how long you are going to stay.' "'Not another minute, really,' she declared. "'They will be sending out search parties for me directly. And, Herbert—' "'How did you get here?' she demanded anxiously. "'I climbed over the wall,' he answered cheerfully. "'There didn't seem to be any other way.' She seemed almost incredulous. "'Didn't you see any watchmen?' she asked. "'There was one at the gates,' he answered. "'I fancy he followed me up the road, but I gave him the slip all right.' "'Be careful how you go back,' she begged. "'This place is supposed to be closely watched.' "'Watched? Why?' he asked. "'Are you afraid of robbers?' "'How much did the Baroness tell you?' she asked. 
nothing except that I should find you here, he declared. She made me promise that I would wait for an opportunity of seeing you alone. And why, she asked, have you come? He took her into his arms again. I have learnt what love is, he murmured, and I have forgotten the other things. That is all very well, she laughed, smoothing out her hair. But the other things may be very important to me. A man named Stephen Hanage has taken up this barn's affair, he answered. He saw you leave the flats that night, and he is likely, if he thinks that it might lead to anything, to give the whole show away. He warned me to get away from England, and—but you want the truth, don't you? All these are excuses. I came because I wanted you, because I couldn't live without you, Louise. Couldn't we steal away somewhere and never go back? Why need we? We could go to Paris tomorrow, catch the Orient Express the next day. I know a dozen hiding places where we should be safe enough. We will make our own world and our own life and forget. Forget? She drew a little away from him. Her tone chilled him. Herbert, she said, whatever happens, I must go now, this moment. Where are you stopping? The Lyon Dior, he answered, down in the village. I will send a note in the morning, she said eagerly. Only now you must go, dear. Someone will be out to look for me, and I cannot think I must have a little time to decide. Be very careful as you go back. If you are stopped, be sure and make them understand that you are an Englishman. Good night. He kissed her passionately. She yielded to his embrace, but almost immediately drew herself away. He clutched at her hand, but she eluded him. With swift footsteps she crossed the lawn. Just as she reached the terrace the windows opened once more, and someone called her name. "'I am coming in now,' he heard her answer. "'It has been such a wonderful night.'" End of chapter 23 Chapter 24 An Invitation to Dinner The landlord of the Yon Dior, who had appeared for a moment to chat with his guests while they took their morning coffee, pointed downwards into the valley where little clouds of mist hung over the lowlands. "'The Messers will find themselves hot today,' he remarked. "'Here only there will be a breeze. Eleven hundred feet up, and only three miles from the sea. It is wonderful, eh?' Rayson pointed across towards the chateau, whose towers rose from the bosom of the cool green woods. "'There also,' he said, "'it will be very pleasant. The chateau is as high as we are, is it not?' The landlord shrugged his shoulders. There is little difference, he admitted, and in the woods there is always shade. But who may go there? Never was an estate kept so zealously private. And does Mansour know, since yesterday a new order has been issued? The villagers were forbidden even their ancient rights of walking across the park. The head forester has posted a notice in the village. I have heard something of it, Rayson admitted. Has any reason been given? Are the family in residence there? The landlord shook his head. Madame la Baronne was never so exacting, he replied. One hears that she has lent the chateau to friends. Two ladies are there, and one gentleman. It is all. Do you know who they are? Rayson asked. The landlord assumed an air of mystery. One, he said, is a young English lady. The other, well, they call her Madame de Mabain. What? The exclamation came like a pistol-shot from Rayson's fellow guest at the inn, who up to now had taken no part in the conversation. He had turned suddenly round, 
and was facing the startled landlord. "'Madame de Mebain,' he repeated. "'Monsieur perhaps knows the lady?' There was a moment's silence. Then the man who had called himself Duncan looked away, frowning. "'No,' he said, "'I do not know her. The name is familiar, but there is no lady of my acquaintance bearing it at present.' The landlord looked a little disappointed. "'Ah,' he remarked, "'I had hoped that Monsieur would have been able to give us a little information. There are many people in the village who would like to know who this Madame de Merbain is, for it is since her coming that all has been different. The park has been closed, the peasants and farmers have received orders forbidding them to accept boarders at present, and I myself am asked, for a consideration I admit, to receive no further guests. Naturally we ask ourselves, Monsieur, what does it mean? One does not wish to gossip, but there is much here to wonder at. "'What is she like, this Madame de Mebain?' Duncan asked. "'No one has seen her, Monsieur,' the landlord answered. "'She arrived in a closed carriage since when she has not passed the lodge gates. She has her own servants who wait upon her. Without doubt she is a person of some importance. Perhaps, though, she is eccentric. They say that every entrance to the chateau is guarded, and that a court and the men are always watching.' Rayson laughed. "'A little exaggeration, my friend, there, eh?' The landlord shrugged his shoulders. "'One cannot tell,' he declared. "'This at least is singular,' he continued, bending forward confidentially. "'Since the arrival of these two ladies, several strangers have been observed about the place, some of whom have endeavoured to procure lodgings. They spoke French, but they were not Frenchmen or Englishmen. True, this may be a coincidence, but one can never tell. Monsieur has any further commands?' Monsieur had none and the landlord withdrew, smiling and bowing. Duncan leaned across the table. "'My friend,' she said deliberately, "'is rotten. I couldn't understand half of what that fellow said. Do you mind repeating it to me?' Rayson did so, and his companion listened moodily. When he had finished, Duncan was gazing steadfastly over towards the chateau and knocking the ashes from his pipe. "'Sounds a little futile, doesn't it?' he remarked, drawing his pouch from his pocket. However, I don't suppose it is any concern of yours or of mine. Rayson made no direct answer. He was fully conscious that his companion was watching him closely, and he affected to be deeply interested in the selection of a cigarette. No, he said at last, it is no concern of ours, of course. And yet one cannot help feeling a little interested. I noticed myself that the lodge gates of the chateau were rather strictly guarded. Very likely, the other answered. Women of fashion who suffer from nerves take strange fancies nowadays. This Madame de Merbain is probably one of those. Rayson nodded. Very likely, he admitted. What are you going to do with yourself all day? Loaf. I'm going to lie down in the fields there amongst the wildflowers in the shades of the woods, Duncan answered. That is, if one may take so great a liberty with the woods of Madame. This sort of country rather fascinates me, he added thoughtfully. I have lived so long in a land where the vegetation is a jungle and the flowers are exotics. There is a species of exaggeration about it all. I find this restful. Africa? Rayson asked. The other nodded silently. He did not seem inclined to continue the conversation. You are the second man I have met lately who comes home from Africa, Rayson remarked, and you represent the opposite poles of life. It is very possible, Duncan admitted. We are a polyglot lot who come from there. You were in the war, of course, Rayson asked. 
"'I was in the war,' Duncan answered, almost to the finish. "'Afterwards I went into Rhodesia, and incidentally made money. That's all I have to say about Africa. I hate the country, and I don't want to talk about it. See you later, I suppose.' He rose from his chair and stretched himself. Across the lawn the landlord came hurrying, his face perturbed and uneasy. His bow to Rayson was subtly different. Here was perhaps an aristocrat under an assumed name, a person to be without doubt conciliated. Monsieur, he announced, with a little flourish of the white serviette which from habit he was carrying, there is outside a young lady from the chateau who is inquiring for you. Which way? Rayson demanded anxiously. Monsieur will be pleased to follow me, the landlord answered. Louise was alone in a Victoria, drawn up before the front door of the inn. Rayson saw at once that something had happened to disturb her. Even under her white veil he knew that she was pale, and that there were rings under her eyes. She leaned towards him and held out her hand in conventional manner for the benefit of the landlord, who lingered upon the steps. "'Come round to the other side of the carriage, Herbert,' she said. "'I have something to say to you. The coachman does not understand English. I have tried him.' Rayson crossed behind the carriage and stood by her side. Herbert, she asked anxiously, will you do something for me? Something I want you to do very much? If I can, he answered simply. You can do this, she declared. It is very easy. I want you to leave this place this morning. Go away, anywhere. You can go back to London or you can travel. Only start this morning. Willingly, he answered, on one condition. What is it? she asked quickly. That you go with me, he declared. She shook her head impatiently. "'You know that is not what I mean,' she said reproachfully. "'I was mad last night. You took me by surprise, and I forgot everything. I was awake all night. This morning I can see things clearly. Nothing of that sort is possible between you and me. So I want you to go away.' He shook his head gently but firmly. "'It isn't possible, Louise,' he said. "'You mustn't ask me to do anything of that sort after last night.' It's too late, you see, dear. You belong to me now. Nothing can alter that. It is not too late, she answered passionately. Last night was just an hour of madness. I shall cut it out of my life. You must cut it out of yours. He leaned over till his head nearly touched hers, and under the holland dust sheet which covered her knees he gripped her hand. I will not, he answered. I will not go away. You belong to me, and I will have you. She looked at him for a moment without speech. Rayson's features, more distinguished in a general way by delicacy than strength, had assumed a curiously set and dogged appearance. His eyes met hers kindly but mercilessly. He looked like a man who has spoken his last word. "'Herbert,' she murmured, "'there are things which you do not know, and which I cannot tell you. But they stand between us. They must stand between us forever.' Of that, he said, I mean to be the judge, and until you tell me what they are, I shall treat them as though they did not exist. I came here, she said, to ask you, to beg you to go away. Then I am afraid you must write your mission down a failure, he answered doggedly, for I refuse to go. Her eyes flashed at him from underneath her veil. He felt the pressure of her fingers upon his hand. He heard a little sigh. Could it have been of relief? If I failed, she began, 
"'And you have failed,' he said decidedly. "'I was to bring you,' she continued, "'an invitation to dine tonight at the chateau. It is only a verbal one, but perhaps you will forgive that.' The color streamed into his cheeks. He could scarcely believe his ears. "'Louise!' he exclaimed. "'Do you mean it?' "'Yes,' she answered softly. "'It would be better, perhaps, for me, if you would do as I ask. If you—' if you would go away and forget. But if you will not do that, there is no reason why you should not come to the chateau. A carriage will arrive for you at seven o'clock. And you will come with me again into the gardens, he whispered passionately. Perhaps, she murmured. The horses, teased by the flies, tossed their heads, and the jingling of harness reminded Louise that half the village, from various vantage points, were watching the interview between the young lady from the chateau and the visitor at the inn. "'I must go at once,' she said to Rayson. "'About tonight. Do not be surprised at anything you see at the chateau. I have no time to say more. If you notice anything that seems to you at all unusual, accept it naturally. I will explain afterwards.' She spoke a word to the immovable man on the box, and waved her hand to Rayson as the horses started forward. They were round the corner in a moment, and out of sight. Rayson turned back to the inn, but before he had taken half a dozen paces he stopped short. He had happened to glance towards the upper windows of the small hotel, and he caught a sudden vision of a man's face, a familiar face, transformed, rigid, yet with staring eyes following the departing carriage. Rayson himself was conscious of a quick shock of surprise followed by a sense of apprehension. What could there possibly have been in the appearance of Louise to have brought a look like that into the face of his fellow guest? End of chapter 24. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.